Hello and welcome, Antioch family, friends, and even those of you who are joining us perhaps for the first time today. My name is Dr. Leah Fortson, and I am excited uh, to be able to share the word of the Lord with you all today. I really felt God was leading me to talk to you all about our very first Valentine, our eternal Valentine. I know that's a little corny, um, but Jesus right? The lover of our souls, as some would say, and to really talk about our heart posture towards him. God's been really dealing with me about surrender um, and holding a mirror up so that I can see the ways in which perhaps my heart posture has started to lean in a direction that's away from him. And so there's this amazing passage of scripture in the book of Matthew um, where Jesus teaches the disciples, a profound lesson about discipleship to himself, to Jesus. Um, And so while we're shopping and buying gifts and preparing dinners for our, our loved ones, the people in our lives, I think it's also fitting that we would do a bit of assessment and examine our relationship, or rather our discipleship to Jesus. So here's what the word of the Lord says in the book of Matthew. The 19th chapter, beginning at the 23rd verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sit in scripture, um, but to also sit in scripture in community. I'm so reminded of people all over the world who do not have this privilege. And so thank you that we get to hear what the Lord has to say today through these verses. And so I pray, God, that you would touch each and every individual as they are watching this. Would you touch their hearts and their minds? that they might receive, hear, and understand what the Spirit is saying. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my strength and you are my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. What a sobering passage. (laughs) Better put, what an aggressive passage, especially if there is meant to be any present-day application. This is a hard passage. To sit in. Yet, as I study scripture, particularly the Gospels, 
I am repeatedly confronted by instances in which Jesus just said things that disturb the equilibrium in a room or conversation in a way that led individuals to profound thought. And this passage is no different. What is being discussed between Jesus and his disciples in the verses I just read to you is quite jarring to say the least. At face value, it would appear that Jesus and his disciples are having a conversation about wealth and that Jesus is talking about wealth in a way that the people of that time were not accustomed to. I mean, we're talking about Jews here who lived under the Mosaic code by which God promised prosperity to those who obeyed him, which means in this context, riches were an indication of God's blessings, which is why the disciples were greatly astounded as the text says, they were so shocked by what Jesus was saying that they asked the question, who then can be saved? The assumption is, if you look like the hand of God is upon your life, then the hand of God must be upon your life. The assumption is, if you have the appearance of being favored by God, then you must be favored by God. The assumption is if you fit the societal and cultural standards for what is considered the good life, then you must be in fellowship with God. And isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that the disciples thousands of years ago used a measurement of godliness that we still use today. That if we look the part, then we must be in right fellowship with God. Look at them, right? That's what we say. Look at them. They are so happy. Every time I ask them how they're doing, they always say they're blessed. They must have the hand of God upon their lives. They're excelling in their careers. Their ministry is taking off. Look at them. The hand of God must be upon their lives. Their family is intact. They have healthy, functional relationships. Their children are in church. She got a husband. He got a wife. The hand of God must be upon their lives. And we never say it out loud. We may not talk about this in our small groups, but there's a silent whisper in your heart and you question the favor of God on your life. You question the hand of God on your life. You question the plans and purposes of God for your life because your life does not look like their life. It has to be why I'm so alone. That has to be why my relationships don't work out. That has to be why my family is in turmoil. That has to be why my ministry hasn't succeeded. And as we consider our lives eclipsed by others' success, we conclude that the hand of God is on their lives and not on ours. And just like the disciples, we believe that wealth and health 
and success equals right standing with God. And so Jesus interrupts the disciples' assumptions. These assumptions that were rooted in materialism, classism, and egotism, and the old covenant. He interrupts old covenant theology that said, if your crops flourished, God was with you. But if your crops failed, God had forsaken you. He challenges this notion that if God was with me, life would be bliss. He, he confronts selfish Christianity that says, if I'm happy, God loves me. And if I'm not, God has abandoned me. And he says, this faith that will get you admission into the kingdom of heaven is not a faith that is materialistic or egocentric. This faith it's not a faith that is self-promoting or self-gratifying. This faith is not about how much you have or how pleased you are with your life. He introduces an expression of the new covenant where we are not judged by what can be seen on the outside, but we are judged by the posture of our hearts. This faith. It's not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. At face value, it, it would appear that Jesus and his disciples are talking about wealth. But when we peer beneath the surface, when we read between the lines, when we zoom out and consider the aerial view of this passage, we realize Jesus is not talking about wealth at all. Jesus is not condemning wealth. Jesus is not creating a class divide as a determinant for who will go to heaven. I mean, he said himself with mortals, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, which suggests that if this is a conversation about salvation, Neither the wealthy nor the poor can save themselves, for we are all saved by grace through faith and not by our works. And that is really good news, by the way. That is such good news because there is no ticket that I have to purchase to get admission into the kingdom. God isn't adding up the dollars in my account to determine if I'm worthy enough to be named among his children. He he doesn't consider the superficial markers of significance that often shape our society. You know how we size people up and determine if they should be in our group or the other group? No, Jesus isn't creating a divide, but masterfully, Jesus is inviting us, all of us, to consider the cost of discipleship. We have these incredible moments at the altar. I'm sure you remember those days when we were in churches worshiping together. We would have these incredible moments at the end of a worship service where we would lift up our hands and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. We have these moments 
in our individual time with God and we cry out to him saying, Lord, your will be done in my life. God, I want what you want for my life. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I have. I remember saying your will be done in my life. We repeat the words that Jesus said to the father in the garden. Father, not my will, but your will be done and completely forget that Jesus spoke those words as he was getting ready to be offered up as a sacrifice. Jesus is not talking about wealth. He's talking about sacrifice. Jesus is not talking about socioeconomical determinants. He's talking about surrender. You know what surrender is, right? It's when we decide to give up our own will and subject our thoughts, ideas, and deeds to the will and teachings of God. Literally. It is not what I desire for my life any longer, but it is what God desires for my life. And hear me, this does not come without internal conflict. Because I think I have good desires for my life. I think I have good ideas for my life. I think I have good goals for my life. Many of you mapped out years ago how you envisioned your life would pan out. Some of you even assigned an age for when you would accomplish certain goals. And with each passing year, you tell yourself, I, I thought I'd be married by now. I, I thought I'd have children by now. I thought I'd be successful by now. I thought ministry would be in a different place by now. I thought I'd be healed by now. I thought my family would have peace by now. I thought I'd have financial freedom by now. And can I tell you just the other day, I whispered to Jesus, I thought my tears would have dried up about this by now. And I don't know what your this is, but the most devastating thing for a human to experience is to have an expectation for how life will turn out and to be confronted with a reality that does not match that expectation. But surrender says, yes, I have goals, I have desires, I have ideas, plans, and even expectations. And I'm willing to lay it all aside for what God has for my life. If I can take a detour real quick, it is easy to assume that this is a martyr text where we just give and give and give and we sacrifice until we have nothing left. And that would honestly be a false interpretation of this text. Because sometimes surrender means receiving more. Sometimes sacrifice means standing on a platform that you don't feel worthy or qualified to stand on. You got to fight your anxiety every day and you got to fight your fears every day and you got to overcome your insecurities every day just to do what you believe God has called you to do. Sometimes sacrifice means taking that position, rising to the level of CEO, starting your own business, sacrificing obscurity, sacrificing the simple life you once dreamed of. 
because it doesn't matter if you have much or if you have little, every station in life requires surrender. God is not concerned about possessions or what can be seen on the outside. He's concerned with the posture of our hearts. I was just thinking the other day how much time it took me to pursue my career. I was in school 12 years after high school, right? You cannot pay me to go back to school. And I have an amazing career that I love and I'm grateful for. And people call me doctor. And sometimes that's cool. And you may look at my surrender and to you, it might look like gain because I have an amazing career or because people call me doctor, but God understands the sacrifice it takes to receive. And that sometimes some of the greatest promotions we receive in life comes at the greatest cost. And so Peter Peter responds to Jesus and he says, look, we've given up everything for you. He says, we've walked away from homes and families and businesses and communities and followed you. What then do we have? Oh, I love this because it almost sounds a bit indignant, right? I mean, It sounds offended. It's almost as if Peter in that moment was embodying and channeling the generations of believers that would follow him that wrestle with the same dilemma after we have given up everything. After we've given up our will for your will, what do we have? After we have crucified our flesh, picked up our cross and followed you. What do we have? After we have endured hardship as a good soldier, what do we have? After we have committed to you without knowing where you are going or why you're taking this route to get there, what do we have? I love this part of the passage Because when I look at the lives of the disciples and consider how they committed to Jesus, they've always seemed superhuman. I mean, Jesus said, come, and they went, many without even asking a question. But here, Peter. Peter, the disciple who would become an apostle. Peter, the one who recognized Jesus as the Christ while others were still uncertain. Peter the one who walked on water is acknowledging perhaps for the first time the cost of his discipleship to Jesus. And after having walked away from everything, he's left with the question, what do I have? One of the most difficult things for humans is to release, to let go, because it is the things and people we hold on to that cause us to feel secure and in control. Possessing, having, holding on to is an expression of existence. It's an expression of our humanness. And Peter is questioning, what 
do I have? I have a question for you. How is it possible to surrender to such a degree that you are left to question what you have left? Peter is asking this question after he had given up everything. Peter is asking this question after he had surrendered. But for many of us, we're not saying, Lord, I have given up everything. We're not saying, Lord, I have surrendered. We're saying, Lord, if I surrender, what will I have? We're saying, Lord, if I give up, whatever it is that you're asking me to give up in this moment, what will I have? In other words, many of us need reassurance before we walk away from the thing God is calling us away from. Lord, if I walk away from this relationship, which is really hard to do on Valentine's Day, Lord, if I leave this job for the next job, Lord, if I stay committed to the call, Lord, if, 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 what will I have? And if that's you, I am right there with you. And it's okay. It's really okay if, if you need a bit of reassurance because maybe we haven't reached the place of reckless faith like Peter. Perhaps we're engaging with God at the level of cautious faith because we, we stepped out on faith before and our hope was disappointed. We're saying, Lord, I believe, but I need a bit of reassurance before I take the next step. And here's the climax of the passage. Whether you're Peter and living in reckless faith or me and living in cautious faith, Jesus responds to Peter's question. He doesn't respond with frustration. He doesn't respond with irritation. Jesus does not rebuke Peter. He does not say, oh, Peter, you're so selfish. Why do you want to know what's in it for you? No, that's not what he said. He says, okay, let me tell you what's in it for you. And I kept wondering, I kept wondering why Jesus just answered Peter's question. In other instances in the gospels, when the disciples had questions for Jesus, he often made a comment about their faith. Oh, ye of little faith, where is your faith? Do you not have faith? Yet here, Jesus does not make a comment about Peter's faith. He simply answers his question. And as I was wondering why in this instance, Jesus just answered the question. I was reminded of one of my favorite passages of scripture. It's in the book of Psalms. And here's what it says. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made and he remembers that we are dust. You see, Jesus doesn't get upset when we question him in this manner because he understands the human desire to hold on to something 
He understands just how difficult it is for us to surrender. He understands how difficult it is to have an idea of how you would like your life to turn out. And rather than pursuing your plans for your life, you receive the plan God has for your life. Jesus proceeds to tell Peter about the eternal reward that is stored up for him. Him and all the disciples. But he doesn't leave it there. He takes it a step further. And he says, if you have given up anything in this life for my sake, I'll give it back to you. He says, I'll give it back to you a hundredfold. If, if you've had to separate from relationships, Jesus says, I'll give you a host of fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. I, I'll give you houses and fields a hundredfold. What this tells me, people of God, is that God is not against us having things in life. He doesn't want to just take from us. If he's calling you away from relationships, it doesn't mean he wants you to be alone. If he's calling you away from a certain image or idea for your life, it it doesn't mean that he's against your success. In fact, God is the promoter of success and thriving, and flourishing. I mean, the writer of 3 John in the Bible says, he wishes above all that we prosper even as our souls prosper. But God, God is concerned about our relationship to the things that are in our lives. And if there is anything in our lives that hinder our ability to follow Jesus well, he says, can I have that? If there's anything in our lives that interfere with our ability or is a stumbling block to our devotion to Christ, he says, can I have that? Just for a little while until we can change the orientation of your heart toward that thing. Do you remember that GIF or GIF, whatever it's called, that was circulating a few years back of the little girl who who has a stuffed teddy bear in her hand and Jesus is trying to get her to give him the teddy bear, but she's struggling. She's struggling to hold on to what's in her hand because she cannot see that what is in his hand is far greater than what is in her hand. You see, Jesus is saying, regardless of what you might have had to let go of, or regardless of what you may be holding on to, trust me, I've got better. He said, eyes haven't seen. Do you remember that passage of scripture? He says, ears haven't heard. It hasn't even entered into the hearts of men. What I have prepared for you what I have in store for you. He said, I'll do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask, think, or imagine. He said, try me. Try me and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessings that you don't have room enough to receive. He says, I am the father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. You see, surrender isn't about giving up everything for nothing. 
It's an exchange for what's in your hand, for what is in God's hand. And you just have to have enough faith, whether reckless or cautious, to believe that what is in God's hand is far greater than what is in yours, even if you can't see it. I want to read an excerpt from this book I read several years ago um, called Costly Discipleship. If you want to read a book that will wreck your life as it relates to spiritual formation and discipleship to Jesus, this is the book that will do it for sure. This, this, this book literally, uh, literally wrecked my life. But here's what the author Bonhoeffer said about this idea of costly discipleship. He says, it is costly because it cost a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for this message. Um, that allows us to examine our relationship with you. But even more so, it allows us to examine our discipleship to Jesus. Thank you for these moments that we have had to examine our hearts and to explore perhaps or consider whether or not we are truly devoted to Christ in the areas perhaps that God, you are calling us into a place of deeper surrender. And so I pray for your children all over the place, wherever they may be watching this, that you would give them strength and courage to surrender to a greater degree, that there are things perhaps in their lives that, that might create a stumbling block in their devotion to you. Father, would you make them aware of those things? And would you give them the courage to release those things for the moment so that you can do a work in their heart? Father, heal every heart mend every place of brokenness bring restoration in the areas that are in need lord minister to your children in jesus name amen i'm aware that this presents a unique opportunity for individuals who perhaps have listened to this message and you do not know jesus as your lord and savior and so i want to make an invitation in this moment to you and if you would like to choose to follow Jesus, if you would like to choose to be a disciple of Jesus, this is an amazing opportunity to do so. So wherever you are, if you would just repeat these words, right? The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that the Lord Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that we are saved. And so repeat after me, dear God, I believe that your son, Jesus, died on the cross for my sins, that his death was payment for my sins. And because of his sacrifice, I no longer have to live in separation from you. 
And so I receive the gift of Christ. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, to come into my heart, be my Lord, be my Savior, that I might be in fellowship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope this message was a blessing to you and that you go throughout your week uh, really allowing God to speak to you about the areas He's calling you into a greater level of surrender. So God bless you um, on the days ahead. Uh, See you next time.